This is week two of the whole story, looking at the Gospel of John and seeking to hear the whole story of Jesus from Christmas to Easter. So we look at chapter two this morning. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and the disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he said to those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. How will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when he therefore was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. All right, if you'll take your Bibles this morning, we're looking at John uh, chapter 2. We, we kind of have a little bit of football on the mind these days, don't we? Uh, congratulations to uh, Ponchatoula High that will be playing in the Dome next week. Uh, congrats to A. Meat uh, that will also be at the Dome uh, next week. That I still expect all of you to be here next Sunday. Just want to make that clear, but it's exciting uh, kind of stuff. Uh, this year when the Super Bowl is played, it may or may not include the Saints, uh, but it will mark the 35th anniversary of the first time that they ran a little commercial at the end of the game where they went to one of the star players on the winning team and said to him, you just won the Super Bowl. Where are you going next? And the answer was, 
Disney World, that, that's what they would say, and that was a kind of a big deal, and uh, Phil Simmons was the first guy to do that, and he cashed a nice check for saying that he was going to Disney World. As we zero back here to the Gospel of John, in the first chapter, we have this great introduction of Jesus, this cosmic linchpin of the universe. We, we have the stories of John the Baptist seeing Jesus and saying, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We, we have the first disciples coming and seeking Jesus out. We have Jesus seeking out disciples so that now he has a group of disciples. And so now the question comes, what is next for Jesus? In fact, it has been said, Jesus, you've been declared to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where are you going next? <laughs> he said, to a wedding. <laughs> going to a wedding. Now, I don't know about you, but i got to think that if I'm one of the disciples that signed up to be on Team Jesus, because J John just said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, this is the one that the prophecies have told us about. This is the person that we've been waiting for all of this time. And we looked to Jesus and said, all right, what's the first thing on the agenda? And Jesus says, a wedding. I might be a little puzzled. I'll be honest. There's a possibility if I were in those sandals that I might have been a little disappointed. Jesus, I, 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 thought, I thought we were going to go do something big. I thought we were going to go change the world. I, I thought, I thought the, the, the kingdom of God was going to show up. And we're just going to a wedding? That, that, that's what I signed up for. That's what I left the fishing boats for. That's what I left my family for. And that's what I left all this stuff behind to follow you just to go to a wedding. As puzzled as the disciples may or may not have been, one of the things that we're going to see in John chapter 2 is that any place where Jesus is is the right place for his glory and his power and his authority to be displayed. Whether it is just a wedding in a small town or whether it is a routine visit to Jerusalem, no matter what it is, any of those circumstances, if Jesus is there, that's all you need for his power and his authority and his glory to be revealed. In fact, the good news that I want to share with you this morning the good news for, for those of you who have been in church for a lifetime, the good news for those of you who have just got a toe in the water of faith and trying to figure this out, the good news for folks that are on the outside saying, boy, I need something different and more in my life, the good news that I have for you is that Jesus is going to break the bonds of empty and dead routines. Man, how many of us have said in the last three weeks, or 30 minutes. Man, I feel stuck. I feel stuck in a circumstance, a situation that seems to be going nowhere. I feel stuck in these routines that nothing seems to be changing. Sometimes we can even come to church and say, man, all we do is we stand up and sing, we sit down and we do this, the preacher preaches way too long, and then we leave It's just the same old, same old every time. I'm here to tell you that Jesus is here to break the bonds of dead and empty routines. And that's incredibly good news for our lives. Now as we jump 
into the text here. The first sentence, the first words of John chapter 2 is, on the third day. Now, we're going to get to it in a minute. That third day is literally three days. But I also want you to see the giftedness, the genius of how John tells a story. In fact, people who already know the story of Jesus, anytime you say to them, on the third day, immediately it rings resurrection. If you're a believer in Christ, if you know the story, if you know how John ends, you know that when we say on the third day, you can finish the sentence and say, he rose again. And so here's John at the beginning of chapter 2, a long ways from the end of the book. He just kind of plants that little seed and says, on the third day. In fact, he does it again when he tells the story that Jesus tells in a minute, in a few minutes where he says, if you tear down this temple... I will rebuild it in three days. Now, the people who hear him, they lose their minds. It has taken 46 years for this temple to be renovated. How can you do it? Jesus, he wasn't talking about this physical temple. He was talking about his body. But already here in John chapter 2, it is a pointing and a reminder that the end of the story is Jesus being raised again from the dead. But, there is a literalness to this third day because it's linking us back to John chapter 1. And at the end of John chapter 1, remember, Jesus is talking to Nathaniel, or as you might remember him as Mr. Fig Tree. Remember, he's the guy that's under the fig tree, and Jesus says, I, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And, and Nathaniel just kind of drops whatever he was holding and, and is just absolutely amazed because you remember what John, Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree? Well, we don't know. But Jesus knew, and Nathanael is stunned by what Jesus saw and understood. But Jesus says, if you were impressed, the fact that I know what you were doing under the fig tree, he says, stick around. You're going to see some amazing stuff. On the third day, they went to a wedding in Cana. This third day is a connectedness. Nathanael, buckle up. Big stuff is coming. In fact, what we see here is that throughout John chapter 2 is that there are these stepping stones of the revealing of who Jesus is, telling us a little bit about who Jesus is, bigger and bigger picture of the character and the nature of who Jesus is. And to begin with, we discover that Jesus is different. Jesus is different. We mentioned just a moment ago that when he goes to the wedding at Cana, it's not just any old wedding. It is the place where Jesus performs his first miracle. Now, if you were to take a survey and say, what do you think would be the best way for Jesus to kick off his earthly ministry, the best way for him to reveal himself, to reveal the power that he has, to reveal his authority, to do one introductory miracle? I mean, what kind of suggestions might you come up with? I mean, you might want to restore someone's eyesight, someone who has been blind to restore their eyesight because now they can see. And maybe it is a person who was lame. All of these are miracles that Jesus did. And a person who no longer could walk for Jesus to stand up and say, arise, pick up your mat and walk. And maybe even for Jesus to play the, the, the big trump card where, where, where he 
raises somebody from the dead, heals somebody from leprosy, some way in which he transforms somebody's life forever in such a significant way. But do you know what it tells us that Jesus' first miracle was? <laughs> he fixed the menu at a wedding. When they ran out of wine, he turned the water into wine. That's Jesus' first miracle. It's kind of strange. That's even stranger in a Baptist church to talk about. But Jesus turned the water into wine. Now, a couple of quick notes here. First of all, it's interesting that when Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe these powerful things that Jesus does, they use the term miracle. The word miracle is anchored in the sense of power. It's pretty significant. He harnesses the power of the universe to transform people in all the ways that we just mentioned. But when John talks about one of these powerful moments, he calls them signs. There's a couple places where he calls them miracles, but almost every time he says it was a sign that Jesus performed. Well, this is the reason why we have multiple Gospels. Yes, they were acts of power. Don't miss that. But John says, listen, more important than the power is the meaning. What does this represent? This is a sign from God. It's supposed to communicate something. All right, got you, John. Jesus turned water into wine. What on earth is that sign, signal, message for our lives? Well, if you go back into the text, you realize that the headline of what Jesus does here, the headline that everybody is talking about, is that the water that Jesus turns into wine is the best wine they've ever tasted. And of significance is that the practice would be that you put your good wine up front. And then maybe when people weren't paying as much attention later in the feast, you gave them some of the, 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 the cheaper wine that wasn't quite as good. And the master of the feast comes to the bridegroom and he just cannot believe it. He says, this last batch of wine that you have held back, that you have delivered here now and not at the beginning, it's the best wine that I've ever had in my life. Everyone serves the best at the beginning, but you have saved the best until right now. And John tells us that this is one of the signs that Jesus performed. Here's what I think. Jesus is putting in front of them, what if the best thing that God wanted to do hasn't happened yet? What if the best, the most profound, the most significant work of God has not happened yet? You see, the audience that's there at the wedding that sees this first miracle, this first sign, was deeply rooted in the Old Testament, deeply rooted in the traditions, the laws, the applications of all of the Old Testament. Good, right stuff. It came straight from God. It is the Word of God. God literally gave it to Moses on the mountain, and he came down off the mountaintop with this 
law. It comes from God. It is good. It is right. You can see how much this matters to that people because they've got these six stone jars that they're using for ceremonial cleaning of their hands. It matters to them. But sometimes we get so attached to yesterday and today. Sometimes we get so attached to right now. Sometimes we get so attached to the things that we already know that we can close our hearts and our minds to what's next. And what God had revealed in the Old Testament, every single bit of it is pointing to the day when the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us in the person of Jesus. And the new wine is going to be better than all that was before that. This is, has extra picture when you think about the crisis of running out of the wine. I, I think that there were some people that maybe were in that audience that felt like they were running on empty as well. It, it had been 400 years since they'd heard a prophet speak. It, it had been seasons of discouragement and defeat where it seemed like the work of God had just disappeared. And they wondered whether there was any hope or any future. And when Jesus turns that water into the wine and it's the best wine they've ever had, what they discover is, is that the best is yet to come. What if what came after the law and the traditions was even better than everything that came before. The feast isn't finished. The best is yet to come. The work of God isn't finished. The Messiah has only now just arrived. Jesus is not just an addition or a multiplication of the past. He is unlike anything they've ever seen or heard before. He is the best out of all the good that was behind. Jesus is different. We also see in John chapter 2, <laughs> Jesus is serious. Uh, the next major scene that we see in John chapter 2 is Jesus visiting Jerusalem and the temple for the Feast of Passover. Understand that all of the disciples, that Jesus and all of the disciples would have attended this feast in Jerusalem at the temple every single year of their life. And in fact, we even have the story of Jesus when he's 12 years old being part of the family uh, caravan that goes and he gets lost amongst all of the people. That's just what they did. And so for this year, these brand new disciples are going to go to Jerusalem with Jesus for the first time. Man, what is it going to be like to go to the temple with this great new teacher that they have? What insights, what teaching, what behind the scenes stuff is he going to be able to, to reveal to them, to show to them, to help them understand that they've never seen before? Well, when Jesus arrives in the same place that he's shown up every single year of his life previous to this, he sees the same scene that he's seen every other year. But this year, Jesus is ready to rumble. This time, when Jesus looks at it, you remember sometimes your parents used to say to you, we're not mad, we're just disappointed. Well, when Jesus gets to the temple compound, when he gets to the temple complex, he says, I'm disappointed and I'm mad. 
really, really, really mad. In fact, what we have here with Jesus is we have a whip and flip situation where, where he takes these cords and he makes a whip and he starts chasing the people who are operating this bazaar in the middle of the temple and he starts chasing them and he drives them out of the temple. He flips over the tables. He, he casts out all of the animals out of this place. That had to be quite a scene for Jesus in his holy anger and righteousness to start flipping tables. I got to tell you, again, I think the disciples were kind of surprised. I think as they were walking, they're like, man, I wonder what this is going to be like going with Jesus. Boy, we're going to learn some new things. We're going to have the best Sunday school lesson we have ever had with Jesus at the temple. And instead, Jesus starts flipping tables, going Indiana Jones with a whip and driving these folks out. I don't think they had any expectation that the Jesus that they had just begun to follow would behave in this way. And if he did behave in this way, if Jesus was going to get angry with some people, it would be with the Romans. It'd be with the tax collectors and the sinners. It wouldn't be with the people operating the house of worship. But I want you to pay attention. What we're going to see revealed in the gospel of John is that we're going to see a Jesus who is full of grace and he's full of forgiveness. But do not ever let us think that that is a Jesus who is ever full of compromise. Jesus is holy. And he has an expectation of how this world is supposed to be. And when it's not right, he will make himself known that it's not right. Now, I would also tell you that Jesus is different. Jesus is serious. But here's the thing that I think is fascinating. Jesus is right. Now, now Jesus has just come into the temple and he has turned it upside down. He, he has been flipping tables. He, he has made clear this statement that this structure, this practice, this religion, all of this stuff is broken. You have ruined what God has intended for this place. You have made it more difficult to find God in the house of God. And nobody says he's wrong. Now, there are some leaders in the room that ask him, uh, what gives you the right to say those things? What is the sign that you can show that you have the authority to speak these things? But notice, at no point in time do they say to Jesus, you have misunderstood, you've got this wrong, Jesus. We're doing it the right way. At no time do they give a defense of themselves. Because Jesus is right. It was broken. Now, I think 15 minutes before Jesus walked in, I think everybody was pretty happy. I think 15 minutes before Jesus walked in, I think one person kind of nudges the other person and says, man, nice crowd today. Check out all of people. Oh, man, is the temple just buzzing with energy today? 
oh, I bet you they're going to have a great offering this week. I mean, this is just, oh, this is great. Anyone that says our religion is dying or struggling, take a look at the number of people who are here today. Look at all the people buying these animals for the sacrifices. You know that within a generation of this, we have someone that records that the week of Passover, they sold a quarter of a million lambs. I'm sure they were, man, what a great week this is. This is fantastic. And then Jesus walks in and starts flipping the tables and says, this is broken. No matter how great you think this is, this is absolutely broken. Now, I have to be honest with you. It's a little complicated because what Jesus does is he flips over the tables and he drives out the money changers and he drives out the people selling these animals. But it's a little bit complicated because the people with the money changers and the animals were actually, they were providing a service. You see, to start with, it's the coins. The, the, the coin that they were exchanging to was a more stable currency. You see, in that day, you would have currency that people could clip off a little bit of it. Not every coin was worth the same amount of money. And if you're supposed to pay a certain amount when you come into the temple, you want to know that the coin that you're getting is actually the full value of that. More significantly, you know that one of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt have no graven images. Well, what's on most of the coins of that day? the image of a person engraved on the coin. It is literally graven images. And so what they would do is that they would take these unstable currencies, the, these you know, questionable currencies that had graven images on them, and they would exchange it for a more stable currency that had no graven image on them. That's reasonable. The, the selling of the animals, if you have traveled for a week and you're supposed to deliver to the sacrifice an unblemished animal. Man, it is hard in that terrain to keep an animal unblemished for an entire week going up and down and all over the place, and one of them gets sick, one of them breaks a, a leg, one of them bites the other one. I mean, it, it's a mess. One of them gets a disease. So it's just easier if you buy it when you arrive in Jerusalem. Furthermore, this sale is happening on the outskirts of the temple. In fact, it's an area that was not included in the original tabernacle or in Solomon's temple. It is something that Herod built for this kind of activity. So why is Jesus so upset about this? Well, I think part of it is there's the real possibility of corruption. There's the real possibility that not all of those exchanges were fair exchanges. Not all of those sales of animals didn't involve some price gouging. And there had developed a system where there were some kickbacks and the people were making money off of people's spiritual pursuits. Yeah, that'll make God mad. In fact, I believe it still makes God mad when people would use his name for their own gain and to line their own pockets and to take advantage of people's spiritual hunger. I'm not pointing to any specific place, but I'm going to tell you that there's never been a, 
a time or a place in history where someone hasn't said, you know what? We, we can use this God stuff to benefit us. And when that happens, I promise you the anger of God will be poured out on that place. Maybe not now, maybe not instantly, but I promise you the eyes of Jesus who grabbed that whip and chased those vendors and those folks out, he, he, he sees all of it. But I think even more significantly, I don't think it's the presence of the exchange and I don't think it's the presence of the animals. I think it's the absence of the worship. You know, I was thinking about this for this morning. It's Donut Sunday. Out in our little courts out here, we got donuts. We've got coffee. We gather together and we, we shake hands. And I'm like, oh, no. Is this passage telling us that we're not supposed to have donuts and we're not supposed to have coffee and we're not supposed to gather out there in the courts and, and greet everybody? I don't believe that for several reasons. But I will tell you that if as a church all that we offered you was donuts, coffee, and a warm handshake, then we would be in, we would be in peril of the anger of God. But at the same time, I would say to you, if you came this morning and really all you were looking for was coffee and donuts and seeing one of your friends, that, that's a perilous situation as well. If you came this morning and you hoped that we would sing the right songs and that the sermon wouldn't be too long and you'd be able to laugh at least once, Oh, that's not, a, that, that, that's not a good thing. We, we need to come here to have an encounter with God. And I think that Jesus' anger is that you have turned this into a house of trade instead of a house of prayer, instead of a house of worship. The remarkable thing is that the whole premise of the tabernacle, which becomes structuralized as the temple, is that the tabernacle was in the center of the camp. And in the center of the tabernacle was the holy place. And in the center of the holy place was the holy of holies. And at the center of the holy of holies was the ark of the covenant. And above the ark of the covenant was the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is where the presence of God dwelled. It was a constant reminder, God is with you. Now we know that God is everywhere, but there was a symbol that sometimes we need to be reminded God is here. And that, that's part of what this building is for. It is a reminder, it is a statement to you. God is with you. Does God live outside of this building? Yeah. But it exists to be a reminder God is with you. Do you know what happened the day that Jesus walked into that temple? The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among them. The presence of God was symbolized by that mercy seat, but it was realized when Jesus walked into that place. 
God was not just symbolically there. He was there. And they didn't notice. Now listen, I'm not trying to pick on any of us. Because, man, I'm, I'm right in the line of fire here. Man, do you ever wonder how many times God was ready to show up at a point in our lives, maybe even in the middle of our worship center, in our minds, in our hearts, in our spirit was someplace else. And God himself was right in that place. And we were worried about lunch or we were worried about a personality conflict or we were worried about who knows what else. Man, it is my prayer that we will be constantly growing as a church and as believers. That we will hunger for the presence of God above all. And that we will seek out the presence of God. And that we would recognize the presence of God. That's going to be one of the things that we're going to see throughout the Gospel of John. There is God in the flesh right there in front of them. Some people see it and some people don't. May we be the kind of people that see it. And may we be the kind of people that help other people see it as well. What's our application today? I want you to kind of just think in terms of your response Man, how'd you get here this morning? Why, why did you come this morning? I know that there's a part of it that you came because you wanted to have a spiritual encounter. But there's also a part of it that you came because it was habit, because you told someone that you were going to be here, because it's a routine, because you feel like you're a better person if you're here. I, I just wonder... If you could just kind of make a note of that bottom of that page, maybe just make it mentally. If you're bold, maybe put it on paper. What's the percentage of the reason that you came this morning? Because you wanted to have an encounter with the living God revealed in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not here to make you feel bad about that. But what I want to say is that whatever that number is, may God increase that in your heart this week so that when we gather again, Jesus takes up more of the reason why we're here. And if he begins to take up the reason why we're here on Sundays, that he will take up the reason why I wake up tomorrow morning. And he'll take up the reason why I go to work on Tuesday. And he'll take up the reason that I work my way through Wednesday. Jesus came to take the whole center of my life, not nibbling at the edges. Will you let him do that? Let's pray.